Jeremiah, God speaks through the prophet and he says, Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Sometimes God's word is compared to a ball and a comfort in times of affliction. Other times it's compared to a sharp two-edged sword and a hammer and a fire. The pastor, the, the, the passage which I have chosen this morning is more like the hammer and the fire and the sword than it is the comfort and the ball. But I want you to know that this passage never fails to convict me and speak to me. And so that as I speak this morning, perhaps with some passion and some conviction about the truths of God's word, realize that I'm speaking to myself just as much as I'm speaking to you. Let's pray. Ask God to speak to us. Lord, we confess that indeed your word is a sharp two-edged sword. Indeed, your word is a hammer. Indeed, your word is a fire. And indeed, your word is a comfort and a balm and a word of love. Lord, we pray that your word would have its desired effect in our hearts, that we may hear from you, that we may walk with you and love you. In that name, which is above every name, I pray, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This morning, I want us to study the letter of Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus. And that is not what we know as Ephesians. That is the letter found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. But before we go there, I want you to look at a passage in the Old Testament that will serve to introduce our text in the New Testament. So please turn to Joshua 24 and look at verses 14 and 15. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. Joshua is speaking to a huge assembly of all of Israel, and he says this, Joshua 24, verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord. And serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away you the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's charge to the people. And then the people responded, verse 24. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God, and we will obey his voice. Verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. At this point, the Hebrew people are off to a great start in the promised land. They have made their proclamation. We will serve the Lord. They have expressed their promise. We will obey his voice. But how long do you think that promise lasted? Well, turn just a couple of pages to Judges chapter 2 and look at verse 6. It's probably just two pages in your Bible. Judges 2, verse 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, 
And all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Again, it's looking good. But then comes verse 10, Judges 2.10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. These three chairs represent the three generations that we read about in Judges 2.10. Chair number one is the Joshua generation. This is the generation that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This generation is committed. Chair number two represents the second generation, the elders who survived Joshua. I'll tell you more about this generation in a minute. Chair number three represents the next generation we read about in Judges 2.10. And this generation has two very sad characteristics, as you see in verse 10. Number one, they did not know the Lord. Number two, they did not even know what God had done for Israel. Imagine that. This generation walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. This generation saw the armies of Pharaoh perish in that same Red Sea. This generation ate manna in the wilderness for 40 years. This generation saw the, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. And this generation didn't even know about it. How can that be? How many generations does it take? To go from a generation passionate committed, loves the Lord to a generation that not only doesn't even know the Lord, but doesn't even know what God has done. How many generations does it take? What? This one? Let me give you three words you can associate with these three generations. The word for this generation is convicted. Convictions. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Unfortunately, the word for this generation is not conviction, it's compromise. This was the generation that was continually compromising as you read through the book of Joshua. This is the generation that failed to drive out the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites. Not because God had failed, but because they failed to completely obey the word of God, as you read through the book of Joshua, you will see this generation compromising again and again. And the children of a compromising generation are almost inevitably a confused generation. They are a people that very often abandon the God of their fathers and their grandfathers. Look at verse 11 and 12. Judges chapter 2. Then the sons of Israel, third generation, did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them, and thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Committed, compromising, 
confused. Now, this same pattern happens many times in history. Can you think of other sets of three generations in the Bible where you see this? How about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Abraham was committed. He left his home in Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land that he had never even seen because God told him to go. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is called the friend of God. He wasn't a perfect man. He had a terrible habit of lying about his wife and saying that he was his sister, she was his sister. But for the most part, Abraham was a committed man. Isaac. Very often a compromise. Remember how Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, were often playing favorites among the children? Remember how, how at the end of his life, Rebecca is scheming with her son to trick her husband, his father? A lot of compromise in this generation. And what happens in the third generation? Jacob and Esau. Both of them were pretty godless men for most of their lives. Until Jacob wrestled with God at Peniel, late, relatively late in his life, he was constantly a con man, conning his father out of, and his brother to get the inheritance, trying to trick his father by putting on hairy clothes so that he felt like his brother and smelled like his brother, constantly conning his uncle Laban. He had to flee from Laban in the the middle of the night, just like he'd fled from Esau many years earlier. Man of convictions. Man of compromise. Man of confusion. How about David, Solomon, Rehoboam? Again, David wasn't perfect. He's called a man after God's own heart. He's a man that wrote probably two-thirds of the Psalms. A man who was passionate about God. Generation 2, Solomon. Started pretty well. Prayer for wisdom. But read 1 Kings chapter 11 at the end of his life. He had made so many compromises by marrying foreign women, by marrying the wives of the pharaohs, that his life was a spiritual train wreck in 1 Kings chapter 11. What happens with his son? He's named Rehoboam. In the first month of his reign, he tears the entire kingdom apart and splits. Within five years, all the gold which David and Solomon had brought to Israel to build the temple probably more gold than the world has ever seen amassed in one place at one time. Within five years, it was all gone because of this man who led the nation with great apostasy. Give you three more words. Passionate. Passionate about God. Possessions and prosperity. So often this generation is enjoying all the blessings that that generation earned. They get caught up in all the goods. Problems. Problems. That doesn't just happen in Bible times. I'll bet every one of you can think of a family where you have seen 
that same pattern. My own family. My great-grandmother, from everything I know, from family records, stories, family Bibles, my great-grandmother was a committed Christian, passionate, loved the Lord. Her daughter, my grandmother, was a professing Christian at one point in her life, but it soon became very much a social gospel that was really no gospel at all. And in the third generation, the generation of my mother and her cousins, probably about 20 descendants of great-grandmother, I do not know of one true Christian in this generation, my mother's generation, not one. That hurts. That's sad. In the fourth generation, probably somewhere around 60 descendants of my great-grandmother, I know of three and maybe four. Sad pattern. Not only happens in families, happens in Bible colleges, seminaries. Ever heard of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth? Every one of those schools began as seminaries committed to the truth of the Word of God and the Gospel. Today, they're way over in that third chair. They don't know the Lord. They don't even know what God has done for them. Denominations. If you were to bring back some of the founders, some of the best-known denominations in the world today, men and women who were passionate about God, people who sat in this chair, and they were to look at the denominations today that they founded maybe a century or two ago, they would be appalled at what they see. Very frankly, there are some denominations today who don't know the Lord and they don't even know what God has done for them. I want to ask you a question this morning. Several questions. Which chair do you sit in? Which chair do your parents sit in? Which chair do your children sit in if you have them? Which chair will your grandchildren sit in someday? This is not something deterministic that if, you're, if your parents were like this, you're bound to be like this or like this. No. This is a choice that every one of us must make. And the passage we're going to go to in the New Testament now, this has been the introduction. The passage we're going to go to in the New Testament now shows us a church where this is starting to happen and asks us to examine our own hearts. Would you please turn to Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 7, the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we find seven letters from Jesus Christ to seven local churches that existed in the first century in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And right away, what becomes quite apparent is that Jesus Christ is concerned about the local church. Oh yes, he cares about the universal church, the invisible church as it's sometimes called, but Jesus is particularly concerned about what is happening in the local church. And lest anyone think that these seven letters are some ancient documents that have little relevance today, look at verse 7. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what that means in the modern language? It means listen up. Because this is for us today. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These seven letters, just look at one of them this morning, are relevant to all Christians, all churches, at all times. So follow along, please, as I read verses 1 to 7. To the angel, or the messenger, of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, your toil, perseverance, that you cannot endure evil men, that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not. You found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's certainly no question that the center of gravity in this letter is verse 4. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. A, a church that apparently once had a passionate, committed, vibrant love for God has left its first love. If it could happen in Ephesus, it could happen in Louisville. And it can happen right here. And that's where every one of us needs to examine our hearts and say, is Jesus Christ speaking to me in this letter? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I call the church at Ephesus the church of eroded love. Because erosion is a very subtle process. You know, a, a stream can cut away a few grains of sand, a, a little bit of soil at a time. But over time, it can dig out a Grand Canyon. An underground stream, you know, carries away just a, a little bit of dirt, but given enough time, the peril of the passing years, it can carve the mammoth caves, Carlsbad caverns, and so on. This letter isn't about soil erosion, it's about spiritual erosion. It's about our love for God slipping away. And so Jesus rebukes his church for spiritual erosion. How's your first love? How's your passion for Jesus Christ? Now let's look at the whole letter. There are three main thoughts in this letter, three primary ideas. First of all, Jesus affirms his church, verses 1 to 3. Look at verse 1. To the angel, the messenger, probably the pastor of the church at Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. 
Jesus is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus has something to say to his church. In all seven letters, wherever possible, Jesus, first of all, praises what is good. It's a good lesson for me there. You know, it's so easy when we're dealing with somebody, perhaps even our own children, to, to cut right to the thing that frustrates us, right to the thing that makes us angry. Jesus, first of all, praises what is good, and he has many words of affirmation for the church at Ephesus. And I, I, these affirmations are really important to understanding the problem because these affirmations, these com commendations, help us understand how you can be completely orthodox, thoroughly active, unswervingly biblical, and yet leave behind your first love for Jesus. In many ways, this was a very good church. Notice five things about the church at Ephesus, verses 1 to 3. First of all, this was a serving church. Verse 2, he says, I know your deeds. And that word deeds has the sense of deeds of service. That word speaks of people caring for the needy, providing for the hungry, doing the ministries of teaching, proclaiming the gospel. I know your deeds. I know that you are a serving church. And we also should be a serving church. And second, they were a sacrificing church because verse 2, it says, I know your deeds and your toil. And that word toil speaks not only of serving, but serving to the point where it hurts. That word speaks of exhaustion. That word speaks of sanctified sweat and holy perspiration. That word speaks of working hard until you're really tired. This was a sacrificing church. Third, the church at Ephesus was a steadfast church because verse 2 continues, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. The word there means to continue under trials. When things get tough, they kept at it. They kept going. And verse 3 reinforces the same theme when it says, You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. See how he piles up the words there? Perseverance, endurance, not grown weary. All those words add up to steadfast. This was a serving church. This was a sacrificing church. This was a steadfast church. Fourth, this was a separated church. Separated from evil, as verse 2 continues, you cannot endure evil men. You know, Jesus Christ calls his church not to put up with anything and everyone that professes to be Christian. He says in 1 Corinthians, remove the evil man from among yourselves. And this was a church that didn't put up with evil in their midst. Now, there are some who said that the church must be a hospital for sinners. Well, yes, but it must be a hospital for repentant sinners. But if a man or a woman is involved in continual immorality, a refusal to repent, a refusal to come back, the word of God says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This was a separated church, separated from evil. Fifth, the church at Ephesus was a sound church doctrinally because it says again in verse 2, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you have found them to be false. They had good discernment to recognize false teachers, false apostles, wolves in sheep's clothing. 
verse 6 expands on the same theme when it says this, Yet this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We call ourselves Christians. Christ ones. Literally, little Christs. Followers of Jesus Christ. Now, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, Christ ones, shouldn't we love what Jesus Christ loves and shouldn't we hate what Jesus Christ hates? What does Jesus Christ love? He loves his bride, the church, the local church. We should love what Jesus Christ loves. And we should also hate what Jesus Christ hates. Now, what does Jesus Christ hate? The deeds, not the people, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So who were these Nicolaitans and what did they do? Well, ancient history has made this a little bit obscure from us, but some of the church fathers like Augustine and Tertullian and Eusebius all write that the Nicolaitans were a sect of antinomian licentious Gnostics. That clears it up, right? <laughs> Antinomian licentious Gnostics. It simply means that these were people who used their freedom in Christ to practice immorality and sin. They said, in effect, because we are free in Christ, because we're forgiven of all of our sins, let us sin all the more that grace may abound. Antinomian licentious Gnostics. You can take that word home and impress your friends. They hate that. Jesus Christ hates that. The book of Romans says, having been set free from the bondage of sin, we are slaves to righteousness. So friends, Jesus again does not want us to accept and tolerate everything that calls itself Christian and, and professes to be Christian. Jesus Christ hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And he praises his church when it does the same thing. So this is a very good church. Serving. Sacrificing. Submitted. Sound doctrine. Separated. Think about the background of the church at Ephesus. Did they have a good foundation? Yes, they did. The Apostle Paul himself founded the church at Ephesus. The Apostle Paul spent two years in Ephesus teaching every day in the school of Tyrannus. The Apostle Paul spent more time in the city of Ephesus than any other place in his missionary journeys. Did they have good teaching after Paul? Yes. Timothy was the next pastor of the church at Ephesus. After Timothy, the beloved apostle John ministered in Ephesus for many years before his exile in Patmos. Church had a good foundation, had good teaching. Did they have good, passionate obedience for the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember that scene in Acts chapter 19 where the people in Ephesus come to Christ and they bring together all their old books about sorcery and witchcraft, divination, and they burn them. And it says the value, the pieces of was 50,000 pieces of silver of the books that they burned. They were passionate about obeying and following the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is a good church. This is a church that we would probably be very happy to be part of 
with what we've read so far, right? And yet, deep down in the heart, something's wrong in this church. And again, we're reminded that a church can look so good on the outside and be doing so many good things and be so sound doctrinally and yet be slipping in its love for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, all these good things for a while can hide that loss of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus affirms his church, but then Jesus admonishes his church. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Right there, Jesus takes the sharp, two-edged sword of the word of God and thrusts it right into their hearts. You have left your first love. Notice, by the way, it doesn't say you've lost your first love. It's not like somehow along the way it, it accidentally got lost. It says you have left your first love. Somehow in all the activities, in all the programs, and all the good things that they were doing, their love got left behind. Love got left behind. Now, some Bible commentators say that the problem in Ephesus was that they were failing to love one another. Failing to love the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I don't agree. Because it says you have left your first love. What comes first in the Christian life? Love for God or love for one another? Love for God comes first. Love for one another would then flow out of that as the fruit of our love for God. But you know, if this love gets left behind, soon this love will fail as well. Again, we can be living on the old momentum for a little while, but if our love for God slips, pretty soon we will be backbiting and gossip and strife in the church instead of Christian concern and care. So what is love? What kind of love is he talking about here? Love for God very clearly, but there's a lot of very sloppy thinking about what I call sloppy agape these days. What is biblical love? Biblical love is right affection that produces right action. Biblical love is right affection of the heart that produces right action. It's that right affection of the heart that says, Jesus, you are my treasure. Jesus, you are my joy. Jesus, you are my hope. Jesus, you are my peace. Jesus, you are what I live for. Jesus, you are the passion of my heart. Is Jesus your treasure? Is Jesus what you live for? Biblical love is right affection that produces right action. Because Jesus said, John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The scripture also says this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Right affection that produces right action. Let me tell you a brief story about a woman in a church where I served many years ago. I will call her Patty. Patty had a habit of shoplifting. 
in her own subtle way. This was in rural Washington State, probably about 20 years ago now. And in those days in rural Washington State, the grocery stores didn't have the barcode scanners yet. Some of you remember how that used to work. They would put a little price tag on each item in the grocery store, and the, the cashier would pick up each item and look at the price tag and punch the buttons on the cash register and so on. Well, when Patty went shopping, she would find an item that she wanted to buy and peel off the price tag and then go to another cheaper item, peel off its price tag, and put it on the item that she wanted to buy. Patty was caught shoplifting, member of the church. That hurt. If you say that you love him, yet secretly you're shoplifting, haven't you left your first love? If you say that you love him, but you're habitually telling lies, haven't you left your first love? If you say that you love him, but you're living in immorality, adultery, or fornication, sure, we put nice labels on it today. We call it an affair. The Bible calls it immorality. Is that you? Haven't you left your first love? If you are caught up in illicit drugs or pornography, haven't you left your first love? If you say that you love him, but you have no desire and no commitment to worship him in the body and the bride of Christ, the church, haven't you left your first love? If you say that you love him, and yet your prayer life is hit and miss, and more miss than hit, haven't you left your first love? Now, I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm talking about pattern. The pattern of your lives. If any of those things has become the pattern of your life or of mine, I'm speaking to myself. We have left our first love. If any one of you is hating a brother or sister in Christ, you've left your first love. First John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If you're deeply angry at someone, refusing to forgive someone, haven't you left your first love? See, if my vertical relationship with God is right, my relationships with my brothers and sisters will, by and large, flow out of that and be transformed and growing and, and good. But if my relationship with my God is slipping, my relationship with all of you will be slipping and falling and dying as well. If you're having problems getting along with a brother or sister in Christ, or perhaps a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe you need to look at this relationship, not this one. Maybe you've left your first love. So what is love? Right affection that produces right action. How's your first love? Is it growing? Is it more today than it was a year ago? Is it more today than it was three years ago? Or would you have to confess slipping? 
It's not what it was last year. It's not what it was five years ago. How's your first love? General William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, once called together a number of his key workers in that ministry. And he said, young men, take heed to the fire in your hearts because it has a tendency to go out. Take heed to the fire in your heart because it has a tendency to go out. Well, we've seen that Jesus affirms his church, all the good things. We've seen that Jesus admonishes his church, you've left your first love. And finally, verses 5 to 7, Jesus appeals to his church to come back to that first love. And in verse 5, he gives us three steps to coming back to that first love. There are three key words, even four, in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming from, to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What's the first word in verse 5? Remember. Remember. Do you remember how often in the Bible God says remember? It's all over the place, especially in, in the writings of Moses, for example. He keeps telling them, remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. And what do you read about the third generation? They didn't even know what God has done. It is so important to remember. When we take the Lord's Supper together, why do we do it? We do this in remembrance, says Jesus, of me. And just about every church that has their Communion table, it says it right on the front. Do this in remembrance of me. And the first thing that Jesus would say to you and to me, if that first love isn't what it should be, remember. Remember what it once was. The second key word is repent. Repent means a decisive change of direction and action. Repent means you realize that you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way on the freeway. What do you got? What do you have to do? Turn around. Go the other way. Remember, repent. Third key word is return. Because he says, do the deeds you did at first. Return to the things that you were once doing. Now, why does he say deeds? When we're talking about love. Because biblical love is right affection that produces right action. And even though they had so many good deeds of which he's already spoken in verse 2, some of those deeds were already slipping because the love wasn't right. So he says, return. Do the deeds that he did at first. And then there's a fourth R. And that is the word remove. He says, or else. Any parents ever said or else to your kids? Or else means consequences are coming, doesn't it? And God always gives his people time to repent, but God always warns his people of the consequences if they do not repent. He says, or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Remove the lampstand. Remove the light. Remove the testimony. How awful would it be if your friends 
or your neighbors, or your children, or perhaps even your grandchildren didn't have the life to see the grace of God because Jesus removed the landscape. Remember? Repent and return. Or else, I'm coming to you and I will remove your landscape, your light, your testimony. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, ask yourself right now, what is Jesus saying to me? To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let me conclude with a few questions for your personal reflection. Is this letter speaking to you? Has your first love eroded away? I have good news. You may have walked a thousand miles away from Christ. You know how far back it is? One step. Turn around. Take one step back toward Christ and he is like the father of the prodigal son who is waiting and watching for his son to return. And what does the father of the prodigal son do? Who represents God? He runs to his son. Come back, it's just one step. Another question. Do you need to protect your first love for Christ? And perhaps you would say, in all honesty, no. My, my first love's still there, but I recognize that if I continue in the direction I'm going, that it could slip. Well, maybe you need to remember, repent, and return now before it slips any further. Another question. Was that first love for Christ ever present in your life? Perhaps there is someone here who needs to repent, confess that you're a sinner, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, recognize that he died on the cross to take the wrath of God for your sins, to take the punishment that you and I deserved. and He took that all for us that God raised him from the dead on the third day. And the scripture says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The scripture says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Perhaps you need to establish that first love for Christ for the first time today. One more question. Do you know someone? Perhaps someone who isn't even in church this morning because that first love for Christ has slipped away. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. There's someone that you need to call upon and encourage them and admonish them to remember, repent, and return to that first love for Jesus Christ. How's God speaking to you today?